and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. I am Cody, one of the co-hosts here, and uh, this is our chapter one of Lot, Crying of Lot 49 episode, uh, wherein we will dive into this book. I'm Will. I'm Luke. All right. So, um, Will, do you want to give us a little bit of uh, kind of an explanation of um, the first chapter, I guess kind of the book in general, but really the first chapter, just kind of a breakdown of what we got here? Well, so I'm not really prepared to break down the whole book, but uh, yeah, Crying of Lot 49 is really about paranoia and conspiracies and how that interlaces into the rest of society. And in particular, it's about how we as individuals can operate in systems as large as modern nation states and economies. Um, this chapter in particular opens as Oedipa Moss, a Southern California housewife, back home from a Tupperware party, opens a letter from an L.A. law firm to learn that her real estate mogul ex-boyfriend named Pearson Verarity had died the previous spring and named her as co-executor of his estate. This confuses her, and so she racks her memory for any possible cause for this decision, and she goes about her daily duties while doing so. Um, at the end of the day, her efforts only unearth a prank call that Pierce had made to her at three in the morning the previous year. The conversation consisted of a series of ridiculous ethnic caricatures ending in a Lamont Cranston impersonation of all people, and a vague in-character threat against Mucho, real name Wendell, Oedipus' husband, who'd suggested hanging up. Uh, when Mucho returns from his job DJing at the KCUF pop station, he complains about his lack of faith in the work, and Oedipa calls him sensitive, knowing his history as a former antithetical used car salesman. The lot had been his proverbial Korea. He, years ago, had vacated that position because of the emotional wear and tear of shuffling everyday families from dented rust bucket to jalopy and back, and he still shudders at reminders of that manipulative business. And she muses if it wouldn't have been easier if, for the both of them if Korea hadn't been his Korea. He continues, sharing that the program director has, for the umpteenth time, criticized his flirtation with teenage callers on air. Finally, uh, Oedipa shares the contents of the letter with him. Mucho suggests she speak to their lawyer and assures her that he has no doubts of her fidelity to him. That night, uh, in, in an echo of Pierce's phone call, Oedipa's therapist, Dr. Hilarious, rings demanding that she trust him to take the drugs he's prescribed her and to join his psychedelics trial, Deep Rilke. Already hallucinating the image of a pointing Uncle Sam, she declines all three offers. The call terminates and the image shifts to one of Hilarious pulling a, a, some sort of face that he believes to be therapeutic, and it stays with her as she lies awake until dawn. In the next morning, she visits her lawyer named Roseman who was up late himself last night uh, working on a draft of an indictment of Perry Mason, for whom he holds a deep the theoretical respect but personal hatred for. Some comedy of manners begins their meeting, then they go to lunch, where he tries to engage her in some footsie before proposing an elopement. Oedipo declines. Finishing the meeting, he advises her of the general responsibilities of an executrix and offers assistance. He also recommends curiosity. Taking his lead, the narrator foreshadows great revelations for our heroine, who is situated as a Rapunzel. Flashback to a vacation she took with Inverarity to Mexico City. There, at a Remedios Baro, 
exhibition, and Oedipus silently weeps while studying the central piece of Bordando el Manto Terrestre, which features young waifs at work in a tower of their own, all embroidering tapestry which falls out of the windows and makes up the rest of the triptych. She asked then why she felt like a trapped damsel, why Pierce couldn't free her, whether the tower was real, and if it mattered either way. She wished she could carry that with her forever. And Man, just, just listening to that recap makes me remember, and I just read this a couple of days ago, but it's, it reminds me of just how funny this book can be. Um, and all, I mean, all of his work, but just, you know, so many parts of it are just greatly, um, absurd and, and, and funny and weird at the same time. Um, so I think, um, I kind of want to just go over everyone's thoughts on this chapter. Um, as far as, as if you, I know we've all read this book before, but you know, what, what is your general impression? Like as far as it setting up the story is, because we all know how things unfold later on, but, um, do you feel like it, it does a good job of, of bringing us into what's going to happen in this story? I do think it's a, it's a good introduction. Um, you know, like you said, the absurdity, I think especially the, um, I found like the, the uncle Sam description, um, like very visceral. And um, that seems to be kind of you know, like it's kind of a caricature of of America. And I mean, you could you could view this whole this whole book as a kind of a caricature of uh, California culture, which um, I, this maybe doesn't even need to be said. But in the 60s, you know, California was viewed as a type of um, like maybe like I mean, I think hippies viewed California as a type of utopia. And I do think that type of, um, the type of view of California still kind of persists for some people. I mean, it's maybe more turned into like Hollywood stuff and wanting to be famous. Um, I actually haven't seen La La Land, but that kind of stuff, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right. Um, I think it's, it's that kind of, I don't want to use the, the term promised land, but it, it holds, I think, a, a, a significance for a lot of people in different ways. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're spot on there because it does have that kind of, you know, especially if you're looking at it from the, the, the hippie, you know, counterculture of the 60s and, and early 70s as compared to now and the kind of duality between that and how Hollywood operates now as a business. Will, what, what did you what did you think? Yeah, I agree. I think central to the book is that image of California as the place where stuff happens. Uh, and in particular, this chapter, I think, does a really good job of setting us up to have a, a tangible sense of this, the psychedelic approach to time and connection that the rest of the book handles, while still situating us perfectly in the comfortable suburban world of a housewife who tends to her herb garden and a workaday husband who, you know, is kind of weak-willed but can rely on his wife to support him. Yeah, I do think um, with the parody stuff especially, it, it does seem to be, like he does, Pynchon does seem to be wanting the reader to um, focus on Oedipa as a housewife, a suburban housewife. Um, I can't remember if it's in this chapter especially, but just in general in this book, um her boredom with her life uh, her lack of satisfaction with her life which 
um, she doesn't, she seems to kind of uh, increasingly be coming to terms with uh, over the course of the book. Um, but this first chapter seems to really hit home that, you know, she's kind of just, just some housewife who, you know, kind of randomly chose a husband whenever it was time to settle down. Um, maybe is not super intentional with how she lives her life. Um, is kind of just floating through life until she gets this phone call about, or she gets the letter about being executrix of the, of the, uh, of the will or whatever. And speaking of that, um, my kind of little pet theory here, which I think kind of applies to the section we're on, um, is that, I mean, I don't, putting yourself in Oedipa's place, like getting a letter um, where you are named the executor or executrix of your ex uh, romantic partner's will. um, It does seem to be kind of uh, maybe a bit, it struck me as kind of wish fulfillment, you know, like you break up with someone uh, you're not really sure, you know, what, what that relationship meant to the other person. You know, like, were you the love of their life? Do they do they miss you? All this stuff. Um, but that does seem to be kind of confirmation for Adipa that she did mean something to Pierce. And uh, especially with the flashback uh, near the end of the chapter, um, it's obvious that Pierce had a pretty big influence on Adipa in a lot of ways. Um, it's never exactly stated why they broke up, I think, or what happened or why they didn't get married why she chose Mucho over uh, Pierce, if that was actually what happened. Um, But I don't know, just putting myself in Oedipus' place, like if I was named executor of my ex-girlfriend's will, you know, it would confirm to me that we actually had a connection and that that connection was special to that person. Um, And I don't know, I could kind of go off about like pension and romance. It did, I did, I have some kind of half-formed thoughts about Gravity's Rainbow and, like, the Jessica, I think it's Roger Mexico romance. Um, yeah. Where, like, Pynchon, Pynchon does address romance, I think, a lot more than people give him credit for, and a lot of that, a lot of that is pretty heartfelt. Um, I know that, I mean, I don't, Pynchon seems, like, Pynchon, you know, like, one of the reasons, people think that one of the reasons Pynchon doesn't like pictures of himself is because of his teeth. Um, Pynchon seems to be known as like for like rumors and gossip to be perhaps somewhat insecure in his physical appearance. Uh, assuming that, you know, is kind of, I don't really like assuming that because that's obviously never been confirmed. Um, and that's basically just based off of ramblings on the subreddit and just kind of general rumors. Um, but I did find it really interesting that, um, you know, like in, looking at it as wish fulfillment. I see where you're going with it. And to, to kind of touch on the, um, Oedipa and, and Mucho, um, relationship thing. I think it's interesting because I think that there is a, I, I think they genuinely care for each other, but I, I think it's kind of like, as you mentioned, they kind of just were both looking for someone to be with, you know, uh, Oedipa after Pierce and, and Mucho, after whatever he was doing before then. But I think they're also, I, I think kind of what's really established here in the first chapter is how connected to the past each of them is for different reasons. 
uh, Mucho can't really let go of the car lot that he had and and the experiences he had there. And, it, you know, especially in the first chapter, we come back to it a lot in his experiences there. Um, and then with Oedipa, where it's kind of more important because obviously she's the central character here. Um, she has that that need for meaning from her relationship with Pierce. And I think it's exactly as you said, where, you know, getting that, that letter that she's the executrix executrix of his estate, like that's a weird thing to get for what is essentially like an ex-boyfriend, you know, a year after the last time you even just talked to them. Um, but I think for Oedipa, it fulfills that kind of need to know that she was important to him. Even though, even if she's not catching what's going on, and and you know, we'll I don't want to touch too much on how things develop further down, but I I think that for her, definitely getting that kind of gratification of of just knowing like yes, I was important enough to him to be made the executrix of his estate uh, is vital for her. I think that's definitely the case. I think kind of tying into what you were saying, Luke, about the people thinking Pynchon doesn't talk about romance. I think what more people say actually is, you know, he doesn't talk about people. And I think that this first chapter is kind of the antithesis of that. Uh, Every single joke, every single wry line, every single weird uh, surrealist kazoo orchestra (laughs) in this chapter can be interpreted as a, a reflection of how Oedipa is perceiving the world around her and to that to a to a larger extent i don't i, I don't want to get too deep into the rest of the book um but there's a, a very sophomoric reading you could say that this is a very large metaphor for dealing with the grief of the love of your life you can you can sit here and reinterpret every crazy thing that happens from here on out as somebody just struggling to find themselves after the loss of someone they really love and really care about. And I don't think anything sets that up better than really the last paragraph of this chapter where she talks about how, well, well he, where Pynchon talks about how she not, doesn't necessarily see herself as Rapunzel, but how, in a sense, she was Rapunzel and that Pierce has found his way up to her and found himself with her in some way that wasn't entirely straightforward, wasn't entirely genuine, but one that was still real to her, even if at staring at that painting, she still feels like she's trapped, isolated somehow. Yeah, and I mean, I think kind of like the flip side of what I'm talking about, which is more borne out through the rest of the book, and I don't necessarily want to get into it too much, but there's the, there's, I personally, I mean, you can either view her being her being named executrix of the estate as confirmation that she meant something, or it could just be um, Pierce is still mad that they broke up, um, and Pierce is looking for a way to mess with her, um, which is not. I mean, it's in the first chapter too, because I mean he he calls her in the middle of the night, does a bunch of voices, and notably he never does his own voice. He's never himself he's playing uh characters as other people um which i mean you know usually when somebody's doing an impression and you know them you can tell from their voice that they're who it is but um 
you know, it's either it could either mean like, you know, he was she was the love of his life and she he, he wants her to know that she was important or it's just um, an opportunity for him to continue messing with her, uh, messing with her head. And um, I don't know. I mean, we can probably this is basically taken from the subreddit, but I, I have heard rumors that the uh, the scene where a woman gets a nose job in V is um supposedly a bit of a fuck you to one of Pynchon's ex-girlfriends from college um who ended up with who ended up marrying someone else um i don't know i you can view it either way and i i think that that is kind of indicative of the book at large where um i don't necessarily want to get into it too much because we're just on chapter 1 but um you know, it's it's on like you can you can come up with a bunch of different interpretations from this book and even from the first chapter. And I do think um, like even on the first page of of my um, of my copy, um, you know, like whenever she goes over her memories of Pierce, um, the first memory uh, is, you know, like the the ending of their relationship where the the hotel room the door is has just been had just been slammed it seemed forever um you know like the final what she thought at the time was the final ending but then that's that's followed by a description kind of vague description of a sunrise uh, at, at Cornell University um and then it gets into that's kind of more of a I would assume that's a happy memory I mean generally my memories of sunrises um are happy although you know, staying up all night and seeing the sunrise can sometimes be a bad thing, I guess. Um, and then he, there's a description of uh, a dry, disconsolate tune in the fourth movement of the concerto, uh, which seems to talk about, seems to be like more of a sad thing. And then one of the other reasons I brought that up, the whole like the dichotomy between either she meant a lot to him or it's just him messing with her is the mention of Jay Gould, um, who um, I looked this up online. I think, I think it was the Pynchon Wiki. And then I have a book. Um, I forget who by, but it's like a, a more in-depth version of the Pynchon Wiki where they go through the references. But Jay Gould was apparently kind of a robber baron who was known as a bad person. Um, which, you know, maybe isn't that big of a deal, but the fact that Pierce has a statue, like a bust of, of his face, um, speaks to the fact that Pierce could have looked up to Jay Gould and, uh, wanted to be like him, uh, which kind of would give the reader the impression perhaps that Pierce is one of those, um, you know, rich, uh, you know, I, I'm blanking on the word here, rich asshole, I guess. No, I, I think. Absolutely. Um, I don't, I don't think someone's going to have a bust of someone in their house that they don't like. Um, I think that, you know, if you're investing that kind of capital into something like that, you know, you, you probably in some way, shape or form admire, um, that person. So I think that speaks a lot to him. I'm, I'm sorry, Will, you were going to say something. I was just going to basically say the same thing. I think it's, it's really hard to overlook. We we've all read m most of, or all of, uh, Pynchon's other published novels and a recurring character is the millionaire asshole and i yep. think him him situating jay gould 
kind of an he's kind of like the shittier version of JP Morgan or an, any of those other uh gilded age yeah. robber baron types. Yeah. He's just kind of he didn't achieve anything other than making himself wealthy and pissing off a lot of people. And I think that's a very meaningful thing to look at here, especially when for me that section of you know, she thought of a hotel room in Mazatlan and the, the dry, disconsolate tune from the fourth move into the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. To me, that section feels like Oedipus' memory of, of Pierce. And to me, that reads as he is dry. He, is, he looks up to the past, but not any spiritual, meaningful part of the past. Just an asshole who got rich. Uh, he listens to music but it's not you know super moving he they they watched a sunrise that they couldn't even see yeah uh, yeah i think you know pierce is for a character who's you know dead at the start of the book um is is a fascinating character and, and seeing him via flashback i think is is an interesting way of of kind of getting to know his character um, something I wanted to touch on, I don't remember which of y'all had mentioned it earlier, um, but about Pinchon's, just the way he writes people, um, something that, that really struck me when I was, when I was rereading this was on, on my edition, um, and I think, I mean, we should probably mention which editions we're using because there's so many of, of these for Lot 49. I have the Harper Perennial Modern Classic. I think it's kind of one of the more common copies. Uh, on page four, kind of our our introduction to Mucho, where Oedipus talking about how he's he's overly sensitive, and how he he walked out of a party one night because someone used the word cream puff. It seemed maliciously. Um, that one I had to look that up. And for for anyone who's who's new to Pinchon, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say this right now. You're gonna look stuff up. I think that's part of of what I love about reading his work is that I'm constantly having to jump onto either the, the pension wiki, which again, if you're new or if you just haven't even heard of it, you need to bookmark that page because it is invaluable as a resource for understanding a lot of the cultural, pop cultural, scientific, uh, mathematical references that are prevalent in his books. And they are super prevalent and very interesting to learn about cream puff. I did not understand the context of that initially um and i don't know if either of you were familiar with it it actually refers to a a used car that's in unusually good condition um which i think is important for the next paragraph because that's when we get this like really what i would describe as the first real pension-esque uh part of this book the long uh paragraph that's almost a single sentence um where he's talking about mucho's um, the things that he saw at the car lot, the people coming in that were trading in cars and how their cars that they were bringing in were kind of a reflection of them as a person. Um, I'm not going to read it because it's insanely long and I don't want to bog down what we're doing here with this um, page and a half really of text. But to me, that was, it was such a beautiful way of, of writing this, this idea that really a lot of other authors would have just kind of condensed into like, you know, he would, he remembered bringing in, see people bring in cars and they would trade them in and blah, blah, blah. But he takes the time to lay out how 
you know, these people, Mucho was seeing them as, as, as people and, and pensions presenting them to us as people who are really only in this part of the book, but they're still given this humanity of, of, you know, understanding who they are through how they lived. And I think that's just a fascinating thing. And I, I think that kind of speaks to that earlier point of, of pension writing people. Yeah. And one, this is kind of an aside, but one thing I, I found interesting was that um, Mucho cries over, over the car lot. And so therefore we get more cry, like the crying of the lot. And it doesn't have anything to do with the, with 49, but I do think it's kind of interesting that um, without giving away the ending, I guess, but the first chapter does feature crying as it relates to a lot, mm-hmm. um, like a, a literal lot, not a lot, but yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really important to say for anyone who's new to Pynchon, which probably not too many of you out there who are listening to this, but in case you are, um, he puts a lot of red herrings everywhere on a thematic mm-hmm. level, on a plot level on a character level, he will trick the reader intentionally. And I, I find his use of crying throughout this book to be just kind of the epitome of that. Because, yeah, Mucho is crying over a lot, you know, not too... It's 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 really on the nose, and it's really ridiculous. Yeah. Because, obviously, yes, it is sad that um, like anyone can sit and think about, you know, the economic exploitation of the impoverished in America... And especially how that intersects with property and real estate, including cars, and feel feel bad for the everyday person. Um, but at the same time, you wouldn't work at a car lot and sob over literally skin cells because that's not the important part. But mucho right. for mucho, it is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It drives home how much pension really values the little guy. Something I wanted to to bring up and see what you guys thought, you know, in, in the notes that I took on this first chapter, you know, obviously there, there's the reference to the phone call that Oedipa got a year ago from Pierce, where he's doing all the, the impressions and the caricatures and never really speaking in his own voice. But then a little bit later on, um, I don't remember the exact page, but when she is talking with Dr. Hilarious, and I love that name, that's another thing is I love pensions. Naming is just so spot on and I love every part of it. Um, but when he calls her, he's, it specifically says that he sounds like one of Pierce's Gestapo voices. And so that made me kind of stop and think like, well, given what we know of how things progress, like, is there a chance that hilarious was there with Pierce and that this was more than one person and, and that, you know, maybe he's in on whatever Pierce is doing to kind of harass Oedipa, if that's what he's doing, or if he's just there in the background to kind of get, because his, his role in, in Oedipa's life, you know, and kind of wanting to understand the facets of her, you know, is he doing it to get an understanding of how the dynamic is between them? If he's even there, you know, it just could be that it was just a weird coincidence. Well, it's, it's definitely true that the, it's, it's possible that Hilarious was set up to be Oedipa's psychiatrist by Pierce in, in some sense to, to do very mild spoilers. That's, true about everything in her life yeah that that actually didn't occur to me but that's a really interesting thing to think about um it would kind of um speak to like how how vast the conspiracy could be and and how um basically omnipotent and omnipresent um 
Pierce can seem at times in this novel. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily think there's any real reason to believe that he was, that, that Hilarious was on the phone call from Pierce. But I do think it, you're definitely supposed to think about that. You're definitely supposed to see that connection. And this kind of brings me, I'm, I'm going through my notes. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to touch on, and, and again, for, for new readers, I think it's important to note that, that Pynchon has a very, um, I don't know, the right, interesting sense of humor, um, much in line with how I, I kind of see things and, and find what's humorous. I think he has a very um, sort of anarchic slash dad joke kind of humor that merges these weird things that are sometimes they're just like awful puns. And sometimes it's really highbrow um, comedy, you know, that, that exists, you know, in the same page sometimes Um, something like for me uh, that had me like, just, I just laugh out loud every time I read it is, is when Oedipa uh, first goes to meet up with Roseman and tells her, Hey, I have to execute a will. And he's like, Oh, well don't let me stop you. And yeah. just like stupid things like that. It's just so it's, it's such a dad joke level of humor, but it's so goddamn funny at the same time. Yeah, his, his sense of humor seems, especially over the course of his, uh, the rest of his books, it seems somewhat all inclusive. Like there doesn't seem to be, you know, there's slapstick humor, there's crass humor, um, there's puns. I can't really, I mean, I'm not an expert on comedy. Uh, but I can't really think of a type of comedy he doesn't at some point or another reference or include. Yeah, it's, I mean, it really is, you know, there, there's Marx Brothers, you know, elements of it, and at times actual Marx Brothers. Um, there's, you know, it's got a Monty Python sort of um, level of, of weird at times, and then it's just, you know, it, it's all over the place, and it's part of what I love. Also, and then I think it was Will that mentioned earlier in the summary, about his um, Roseman's wanting to take down Perry Mason because he can't be Perry Mason. He wants to basically just destroy this fictional character. And I just, I love that part. Well, and I, I, I really love that part in particular because it's kind of a foreshadowing of a theme that Pynchon had talked about before this book and is prevalent in every book afterwards. But in this one, it takes a very, very much a backseat, though it's still present. And that is... The fact that men just kind of self-destruct when they feel sexually inadequate. That, yeah. That's really what that's about is, you know, his wife watches Perry Mason and loves Perry Mason. And he looks at Perry Mason as like the, the ideal of who a lawyer could be. And for him, that's, that's not okay. He can't handle that. And that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. Again, that's very silly. It is. Yeah, especially... Yeah, I mean, just that whole concept of like, well, if, if, you know, if I can't be that, then I'll just take that. I'll just get rid of that, you know, however I can. If that involves creating, crafting this bizarre lawsuit, whatever he's trying to do to, to bring Perry Mason down. Um, yeah, I just, I love that part. So I did have a question going back a bit, back to Mucho's uh, pseudo PTSD. Um, what do y'all take from the, the last sentence there of endless convoluted incest. What, what, how is it incest? Cause I can think of a few, few reasons, but I'm not, I'm not strong. I don't feel strongly. Okay. You're talking about at the end of that long. Yeah. Yeah. Of the, okay. 
Yeah, I'm looking at the okay. So Tamudra was horrible, endless, convoluted incest. I'm not really sure. I I I didn't really think about how that made me feel at that time. I think I, I was kind of lost in the prose that existed before that. Um, I mean, it's I I think is that the first mention of like kind of deviant sexuality in this book. I mean, I can't. I think it's on the next page for me. Uh, we get the. We get the Mucho Moss uh, quote about how he hits on teenage girls. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, what I interpreted the endless convoluted incest, if I really thought about it at all, was that I, I don't maybe I'm looking at the paragraph now. And I'm not really finding um, justification, but it could just be that um, it's like people come in with uh cars and then they sell the car and they get another one and then they come back and sell that car and then you know it's like this like inter like it's like a it's creating this like um like a circle of buy a car from a used car lot uh sell the car back to the used car lot and buy a different car and then sell that car back to the used car lot and buy a different car which would then create like a closed a closed loop a closed uh community um, and so that would maybe be like a metaphor for or the incest would then be a metaphor for that. Um, I see. okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, in having a minute to kind of think on it, I, I think if we pull out a little bit of it and, and see it as more of just people who are closely related, I think all of those people that are being described in that, um, that particular scene there is a common thread that kind of you know working class lower class um person that's that's being described because you know a a car a used car that comes in you know in good condition a cream puff isn't going to come from one of those people and so i think it's just that kind of you know like you know like luke was just saying that cyclical nature of of you know the same thing over and over because those people cannot typically get out of that situation so it's just you know, trading one bad thing in for another thing that's just almost better, but it's not going to be better for long. And then you're just, you know, back to where you were again, over and over and over. Yeah, yeah. I do. One one thing that does go on in this first chapter is I do think there are some references to um, how degrading capitalism can be. Um, there's a on page four for me. There's the the mention of he was a disc jockey he worked dot that dot and then he says he suffered regular crises of conscience about his profession i don't believe in any of it ed he could usually get out i true i try i truly can't um and it talks about how like his emotions concerning that are pretty much unreachable because they're so deep inside of him um and, you know, as someone, you know, I, I do have a master's degree, but my last job was pizza delivery. You know, I've worked some jobs that I, I feel like, you know, were kind of perhaps below me. But, you know, you have to make money to, to live in this society. You know, I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of people do find their jobs somewhat degrading or somewhat below them, uh, but they have to do it anyway. I do think that that comes up some here. And I do think Oedipa perhaps sees, it comes to see, um, her being a housewife, uh, who a suburban housewife who doesn't have a lot of, um, you know, she has time to go to Tupperware parties and get drunk. And, uh, that seems to be like a pretty big event for her. You know, like her life isn't super exciting. Um, 
you know, I don't know. I mean, it seems to be kind of, um, I think this book is set in 1963. Is that correct? Some I people say so. 64, but I, I came to 63. Yes, that would have been around the time of the Kennedy assassination, which is another thing that we can probably get into later in the book, um, which I know some people view the entire book as a commentary on the Kennedy assassination and its aftermath. But 63, 64 would have been the beginning, if I'm correct. I think I'm correct. It would have been kind of the beginnings of the hippie movement. And a big part Mm -hmm. of the hippie movement is people feeling like... um, the way things were going and the, you know, like what they were doing, you know, it's, it's drop out or what was it? Tune in, drop out, turn, turn on or something. Yeah. The Leary, Tim, Tim and Leary, you know, like uh, leave your on, life, start, tune in, drop out. Yeah. Like leave your life, start doing drugs and start sitting around smoking weed and talking about the universe or something. You know, like it's, it was a time of people becoming dissatisfied with the way things were, um, which is definitely present in this book. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and specifically that that kind of message, I think this chapter is of a sort of metaphor for that, where it starts in very tame world. In a, the book, I suppose, is a, starts in a very tame world and then spirals out into absolute psychosis. It really is kind of a recapitulation of Pynchon repeatedly agreeing with people like Timothy Leary in principle, but not at all in execution, where he does want people to you know expand their mind maybe not through drugs but you know challenge themselves and see things from a different perspective and he does want people to drop out of society and build their own um but he just doesn't believe that any of the movements have done that yeah well i i did interpret the the part about hilarious's uh drug uh drug experiment Uh, i wrote down mk ultra in the margin um which is something that, you know, like the, the dark side of the hippie movement is something that's gotten into an inherent vice in Vineland. Yep. Um, but, and I mean, it's kind of amazing that that's even in here and that you can even write MKUltra in the margins because that would have been well before it was ever reported on. Um, I think it was, I don't think it was reported on until the late 70s, I want to say in the New York Times. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's already... It already he seemed Pynchon seems already to be aware of the dark side of the hippie movement even while it was going on and it took seemed a lot of other people it took until the mid to late seventies for them to realize how the you know supposedly utopic nature of of the hippie movement you know was actually had a pretty pretty severe dark side to it. Yeah, a lot of the time when people talk about how Pynchon is a central figure of counterculture, you know, in the post 70s era they think of him as a hippie and he's not he's about the same age as hunter s thompson from a from a generational standpoint he's much more of a beat than he is a hippie yeah i would Mm -hmm. agree with that and even his his pro style especially in v i would say is is um you can tell that he's read he's read some kerouac oh he's he's in the gravity dreamer you can tell he's read some burrows so in this book in crying of lot 49 the scene where oedipa drives into san narciso it's practically stolen from uh on the road driving into san francisco i think i was gonna say he's i know that um i don't know if if it's you know on record quote unquote but i know he i know that uh on the road has been cited as a huge influence on him um so yeah it wouldn't surprise me that that would sneak its way 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I just read On the Road myself, and it, it absolutely cemented for me the opinion that um, for at least Lot 49 and Gravity's Rainbow, Pynchon was doing a lot of speed. He was definitely, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was definitely on something. I'm of the opinion that he was taking acid whenever he was writing Gravity's Rainbow, but of course, we'll, we'll never know. It's, I think, yeah, I don't, I, there's I, no I way we can ever know. He's gone on record saying that that cannabis was a main thing. And yeah, there around is... him have said that um, he used a lot of amphetamines. Yeah, yeah. there is there is that. Um, it's like a, there's some article, I think, from the early 70s that it's like some guy. I forget what the title is. The title is something I literally like, just I, read this the other day. I think I know exactly. Yeah, it's like I'm, I hung out with Thomas. Pinchon. Yeah, I, I smoked weed yep. with Thomas Pynchon. It, it describes him um just sitting there hanging out with people and just rolling joint after joint after joint and smoking joint after joint after joint and seemingly the weed having no effect upon him right um, but it also i think he also mentioned that he was he didn't talk much he just listened and i think that's really interesting because i think he's i think that kind of keys into how he might be as a writer that he's taking in so much of the world and then you know just letting it all out and i, I you know obviously we can't say for sure how he how he writes what his process is what he uses and doesn't use but i definitely would not be surprised if there was some sort of you know maybe a, a, a he felt a need to you know because of all the information that was within him you know like maybe lsd or or you know, marijuana or whatever it is was like having that was what let him get it all out because yeah gravity's rainbow has that rambling like I just took a whole bunch of acid and here's all my thoughts at once kind of vibe. I just, uh, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not of the opinion that he was writing on LSD. I obviously the guy took some psychedelics, but to me, his, his books don't read that way to me. They read much more as stoned and slippery than they do as hyper-connected. Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, this is kind of more of a general comment and it's, I saw it, I think it wasn't on that pension subreddit, but it was somewhere on Reddit that was talking about how, like, I, I would say, like, well over half of the books that are considered classics from the, from the 60s onwards in the 20th century kind of assume that the reader has, um, you know, a, like, been in, you know, experienced some type of hallucinogen in their time. Um, I mean, weed is, marijuana is, technically i think a mild hallucinogen and i think you all get what i'm saying or like it's just kind of assumed uh with a lot of books that you at least have accessed that head state at least once well i i i actually i saw that thread i'm not sure it was on the thomas pynchon subreddit i think it was on the literature subreddit i think you're right yeah um i disagree i not necessarily in terms of what the authors were thinking or whatever, because psychedelia absolutely broke into pop and high culture at that time period. But I think it's it's more useful to think of it less as expecting the reader to have experience with psychedelic experience and more expecting the reader to be used to having to interface with those kinds of things. And it's a subtle yeah. difference. That's but fair, yeah. I and I mean, I... It it can I, come from like meditation rather than you know actually drug use. That's a good point. And I mean, one yeah. thing this is kind of random, but um, I I've I I'm I get on the the website The Ringer a lot, the Bill Simmons I website. Too, yep. Yeah, yep. and they they did a thing on pop on uh not pop uh Doctor Strange a while ago where 
Uh, they talked about like the 60s, 70s run of Doctor Strange and how psychedelic it was and um, how like the the person who did the art for it. And I they had examples of the art and it's very like, you know, like LSD vision type stuff. But how the the person who did the art for that um, had never had was basically like a teetotaler. You know, I get I get what you're saying where you don't necessarily have to yeah. have have smoked weed or done a bunch of acid to to know what that what that kind of stuff entails you know that's a good point because i and you know i should have backtracked on that a little bit because i've spent the last week listening to frank zappa and he's a prime example of of that that someone can be so uh just creative and and looked at from the outside as like you know a weird person who oh they had to have done some kind of drugs to make what they made but zappa was notoriously anti-drug to the point where you know anyone in his band was not allowed to be using drugs um and he's still like his output was insane um so yeah i think that's that's fair but uh, you know it's i will obviously never know with with Pinchon specifically you know what his approach was yeah and i think in particular I mean, regardless of whether you have to have done acid to understand what books that were written with that in mind uh he, I mean, the, so there's a thing. I don't, I don't know if either of you are at all plugged into the modern hippie psychedelic culture at all, but there is a, a, a phrase, and it's that psychedelics turn your mind into the world, as in that everything you see, everything you hear, everything you experience and think about gets integrated into your perception in every other way, too. And I think that really links into the choice of Bordando el Manto Terrestre as the um, central illusion of the novel. Because it, it is, you know, it's a bunch of girls with very emotional faces staring out into a landscape which they've all created that, mm -hmm. that they are making. Right. And, and being, um, I, I think there's some importance to the, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's like a, a character in the center of that painting. It's kind of overlooking everything and, and keeping an eye on them. Yeah, there's a taskmaster of sorts. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, there's, I, I think, and especially with, and we kind of touched on it, with, with the, the California trilogy of uh, Lot 49 and Vineland and Inherent Vice, there is that, that exploration of the potential of the hippie movement and what it could have been had it not been for uh, the external elements of, you know, I, th I think that um, the, I, the Kennedy assassination, I think kind of moved everything shifted the zeitgeist into, into what happened. But there's the combination of, you know, in the eighties, you know, the, with, with Reaganomics and, and all that and the rise of late end capitalism um, that was really, really integral in bringing down the counterculture movement, but the counterculture movement also did a lot of damage to themselves. And I think that's a lot of what Pinchon gets at at times, especially in this book, but I think a lot more so it's explored in Vineland. Yeah. Um, and like COINTELPRO, I think it was called where like, yeah, you know, like using the, and I think that's, that's maybe more has to do with like black Panthers and stuff, but using, you know, people inside the movement to make the movement look bad. Uh, was definitely a thing. Yeah, it's 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 very tricky to look back on it historically because you have people like Charles Manson who were in some ways a hybrid of, you know, 
the powers that be controlling the counterculture and a genuine case of just somebody doing a ton of drugs and going off their rocker. Um, and, and then on the other side, you have people like Timothy Leary, who were more or less, you know, had the best intentions the whole time, really didn't do that much wrong per se, but still didn't make anything of it. And then you have people like, um, I think he, he went by Dr. Acid in the early 60s, hanging out in the San Francisco area, where he was running around constantly doing meth, constantly doing meth, constantly giving people massive doses of intravenous LSD, but also incredibly like direct action focused as a person trying to keep people safe. And yet at the same time, you know, being a meth head, not achieving anything. Well, that happened. I, so I spent a lot of high school uh, and I still go back to it every now and then. I had a, 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 this fascination with, with counterculture movement um, and especially with, with the, uh, the yippie movement, like Abby Hoffman and Bobby Seale and those guys. Um, and I still have a few of Abby Hoffman's books. He was like, Abby Hoffman was like a huge influence to me, uh, especially in high school, like that kind of anarchic, um, wanting to bring down capitalism and, and make society better. But kind of like you mentioned, like he kind of self imploded because of drugs. He got, you know, I, there's debate on how it, how things went down, but he ended up getting, uh, you know, involved in a cocaine bust that ultimately led to him, uh, developing an addiction and then taking his own life. Um, but you know, he was so integral in a lot of the, um, let's make everything free or, or, you know, we don't need to focus so much on, you know, making money and having that be the, the goal of life. Um, but then he was ultimately brought down by, you know, depending on how you look at it, you know, either the, the government was, had a hand in it or he just lost his own way. And I think he sits somewhere in the middle of that between the, the Manson and Leary thing where, you know, there's the bad people doing bad things for bad reasons or selfish reasons. And the good guys who had the right intentions, but for whatever reason, it just, they, they couldn't ever get anything off the ground. I kind of feel like Pierce is, is the, the, the back end of that, that kind of, you know, he was, you know, his focus was success and, 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 um, you know, being the, the capitalist man. And so, and I think that's also explored later, you know, again, in, in Vineland and in Inherent Vice, but that guy who's working to bring people like, um, like Mucho and, and some of those other, you know, counter, I wouldn't say Mucho is too much counterculture, but you know, the, the guy who's just trying to be out there for himself, like, you know, and the, the people that brought cars into his lot are the ones that are affected by that. So. Yeah. I think, I think the role of the hippie movement and psychedelics in particular in this book is one of the most confusing parts it, and we won't, we'll get to it later, but the, the way that it's discussed in this book is very out of place compared to the rest of the novels of his, mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. exception of its association with, uh, as you name-dropped, MKUltra, and things like, uh, you know, the op Operation Paperclip, which is clearly what Dr. Hilarious is, an, is a direct reference to. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a thing in Gravity's Rainbow too. It, Paperclip's the one about the us bringing Nazis to the U.S., right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Werner yeah. von Braun. Do we want to get into quotes we like now, or do you want to? What do you all want to do? Um, yeah, or references. I don't think... 
really um, pick up on a lot of references in this one. There weren't, I don't think, in the in this first part, but as oh, far I as I disagree. Uh, well, no, no, please, yeah. I wanna, I wanna Yeah. Um so I mean for so off the off the bat we get the the references to Bartok and to That's Muzak true, yeah. and Vivaldi. Yeah. Um we, we get Edipa reading book reviews in the latest Scientific American, which is a very surface-level reference, but it's an important one there. It it builds her character in the sense that she is the kind of person who really, she wants to, she wants to be informed, but her only access is through these pre-digested book reviews from popular science. Like, this is not, Scientific American is not academic it's not teaching right. you actually breaking news it's giving you pre-digested stuff that you know from a from a conspiratorial perspective you know it's what they want you to know yeah no that's for sure and then also and i totally forgot about this as far as references all the numerous references to like uh like the shadow and and jack lemon and you know those kind of pop culture yeah uh, um, icons one one that i really liked um i think it's interesting i don't know if he was intending this to be the way it's read, you know, he wrote it in 1966 or something. Um, when she recalls, it, when, when she recalls the call that um, Pierce made to her and Mucho, uh, it is situated as it took her till the middle of Huntley and Brinkley to remember. And Huntley and Brinkley was the com competition to CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And no one nowadays knows who the hell those people are. That's true. I, most people probably don't remember who Walter Cronkite was even. Yeah. That's a good point. Something, and that, that reminded me specifically the, the, the Walter Cronkite and the news thing. I think what's integral and, and, you know, I, I keep coming back to the California trilogy on this, but I think it's vital, especially in, in examining what happened in the sixties and how, you know, what contributed to the downfall of the counterculture movement. TV plays a huge role in, uh, in Vineland and in Lot 49, especially, I think, um, where you see that kind of the the placation that people get into when they're just watching TV, and they kind of zone out and it becomes what their focus is because, it, you know, that was the time that TV was really becoming TV. It wasn't just, you know, your Leave it to Beaver and, and uh, nightly news kind of thing. Like shows were starting to happen and movies were getting broadcast on TV. And so that was starting to really get its hooks into a lot of people and becoming the the sort of new addiction, the new psychedelic that um that people had that wasn't there before and that started to kind of consume them. Yeah, and uh, in going back, I can't remember. I think both of you have mentioned the you know the this this chapter talks a lot about Oedipo being discontent and I think very subtly you can see, you know, she has an herb garden which at that point in time was kind of a trend of the counterculture. And it was the kind it was part of the trend of the counterculture that suburbanites could get into. It was a way of feeling like you were freeing yourself from the systems around you. She, again, she's list, she's reading Scientific American. She's trying to educate herself. She's making whiskey sours, which to me seems like a fairly outdated drink for the 60s. To me, that's the time of tequila. To me, that's the time of yeah. vodka. Especially in Southern California, yeah. Yeah, and then you have, again, Huntley and Brinkley. They were not the premier news source of that time period. All of these things situate both Oedipa and Mucho as people who feel that they are separate from the masses and yet are not at all distinct. 
this is, I and mean, this is just in one chapter that we're talking like 12 pages. This is, yeah, let's go ahead and talk quotes unless anybody had any other references they wanted to bring. I don't think there was really much. I mean, math tends to play a huge role in a lot of his books, but I don't, there's not much in lot 49 that I remember. Uh, pop culture, music, science, that stuff definitely comes up. But I mean, as far as quotes, Fu Manchu. I mean, that's the only Fu other yeah. one I can think <laughs> yeah. of. Um, I think as far as quote, like I mentioned the, you know, the, the description that, you know, where Mucha is recalling the, the trade-ins that one hit me real hard. Uh, the other big one that I marked, uh, was, was when she saw the painting and, um, or was recalling the painting rather. And that there's that, that whole section about, um, being in there and describing the painting and, you know, the tapestry, which spilled out the slit windows and into a void so on and so on. But what really hit me was the kind of the, the end part of that description where it says, you know, she could, she could carry the sadness of the moment with her in that way forever. See the world refracted through those tears, those specific tears as if indices as yet unfound varied in important ways from cry to cry. I love that one. Cause it's a f- kind of a thematic foreshadowing of his later obsession with optics. Yeah. Uh, and earlier in that, in that paragraph, I particularly really loved the, um, there had hung the sense of buffering insulation. She had noticed the absence of an intensity, as if watching a movie just perceptibly out of focus that the projectionist refused to fix. And you can't tell when she feels this way, really. I mean, it's situated, but it's situated in about three different ways. Yeah, I did. I think I wrote down, like, the word repression um, right there, which um, she does seem at the beginning of this of this book to be somewhat repressed um which then makes me think of uh kafka who uh, a few months ago i read the trial and um there are some similarities between prong of lot 49 and kafka i'd say i mean the sense of there being like a vast um partially bureaucratic conspiracy that the narrator or not that both the narrator and the main character don't understand uh, like a sense of like overwhelm, like an overwhelming um, network um, that the main character is in the middle of, and like kind of at the whim of like that that network. Yeah, and I think uh, to draw more to, to the trial in Kafka, uh, there's a strong tendency in both of those authors, in both Pynchon and Kafka, to situate um, horror and comedy in the exact same space. The, mm-hmm. the, long chap, the long paragraph about Mucho crying over the cars and the, the section about, you know, uh, Oedipa hallucinating Uncle Sam who turns into her psychiatrist making a funny face. I mean, the, those are both, if you're reading the book and you're invested in the book, they're both horrifying, but they are also both entirely stupid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I do like the the Fu Manchu thing is kind of the first time this book brings up um, racism and kind of racist caricatures, which uh, later in the book there are there are more mentions. I guess hilarious doing the Gestapo thing is also um, an example of uh, something that has to do with racism, but that is kind of a an undercurrent in in this book is racism in America and racism among the uh, establishment in America, like systemic racism that kind of stuff yeah the the whole part where pierce's calling starts with heavy slavic tones looking for a bat 
then Comic Negro, then a hostile Pachuco dialect, and a Gestapo officer. I mean, those are all over the place, and I, I can sit here and try to come up with what the meaning is with that progression. I haven't come up with anything, and I don't know if anyone has. Another quote that I wrote, and it's not so much the the prose of it for me, it was just the, the kind of blatant foreshadowing, which isn't always common in his books, but when, when Oedipa is talking to Roseman, um, when they have their meeting, you know, after they, uh, they go to lunch and he's trying to play footsie with her, um, Oedipa asks, uh, she says, hey, said Oedipa, can't I get someone to do it for me? Referring to doing the whole execution of the will and uh, me, said Roseman, some of it, sure, but aren't you even interested in what? In what you might find out? And then it kind of just drops from there. And we go into that that talk of the tower and, and the painting and everything like that. But I thought that was just, you know, so, you know, opening the door for everything that's about to happen. Because she could have easily just found someone to do it for her. And then there's no story there. There's no, you know, nothing happens. But it, it's kind of the, the push out the door for her of like, you know, yeah, you could, maybe you could, but what's the point? Because you know, who knows how far down this rabbit hole you're going to go. Yeah. And to, to kind of build on that, I mean, Oedipa, Oedipa's life seems kind of like it lacks a, a central unifying theme or like she doesn't, she seems to lack direction uh, in this first chapter. Um, you know, like she doesn't, she, do, I think she's a state. Yeah. She's a stay at home wife, not even a mom. And you know, like she doesn't, she, she seems to be searching for a purpose kind of passively. Um, and then this executing uh, the will seems to be, you know, her the the purpose that she kind of chooses for herself. Yeah, it, I think a lot of the time um, Thomas Pynchon gets com- gets criticized more or less rightfully for his portrayal of female characters, but I do think in this case he is explicit, almost explicitly, not explicitly, but almost explicitly. Uh, pointing to the fact that so many women are essentially raised to only think of themselves in relationship to men, because those bits of character we get from Oedipa are framed as memories defined by other men, or by men. Yeah. The uh, the quote that I liked the most was, and we already kind of talked about it some, was the, the Uncle Sam uh paragraph that we want you hanging in the air over her bed she now beheld the well-known portrait of uncle that appears in front of all of our post offices his eyes gleaming unhealthily his sunken yellow cheeks most violently rouged which is such a great phrase his finger pointed between her eyes i want you i don't really know why this is but some of my some of my like earliest memories are being in school and seeing seeing those kind like that kind of poster the uncle sam poster and then like rosie the riveter posters you know the kind of american propaganda posters mm. um i've always been kind of into and obsessed with like vaguely kind of passively obsessed with the the uncle sam posters and stuff um I, the 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 mental image it gives to me is kind of like a almost like zombified um, Uncle Sam who like has, like is wearing a bunch of makeup or something you know, like a almost like undead but still still like needing you to serve your country thing I don't know yeah it's like Uncle Sam as a Lich King 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was, I was flipping through, I found one more quote that I, I kind of wanted to end. I mean, at least in my, my quotes on at the end of the chapter, I'm not going to read the whole thing cause it's, it's a bit long, but it, there's kind of a description and it kind of piggybacks on, on what you were saying about, um, Oedipa as at least in this chapter as kind of, you know, the, the character development we get for her comes in terms of her relationship with men. And at the end of the chapter, um, after she's kind of recalling the painting and everything, there's that part that it starts with, uh, such a captive maiden having plenty of time to think soon realizes that her tower, its height and architecture are like her ego, only, uh, only incidental that what really keeps her there uh, that really keeps her where she is, is magic, anonymous and malignant, visited on her from outside and for no reason at all. And it goes on a little bit after that, but I thought that was kind of a, an interesting way to look at her, especially this early on, and, and how a lot of what we know of her to this point is kind of determined by the men in her life, the outside forces in her life. Yeah, that particular line always struck, strikes me as super enigmatic, because I, what, what is the tower? What what is the tower there? Is it just her discontent? Is it her search for meaning? Is it her isolation? What what is the tower? I kind of took right. it. I took it more as like her isolation, which could be self chosen. You know, like she could she could get a job, be be more of a part of the community, but um, she chooses to to stay at home. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know where I'm going with that, but no, that's definitely also- part of it. It's yeah. interesting too because when she talks about you know in in recalling it, what got like Pierce coming in there, I thought it was really interesting that he came in there like the way he got in there he couldn't climb you know like Rapunzel he couldn't climb her hair and get up there he used a credit card to Jimmy the Lock basically like he used the power of money to get in. It's a great metaphor to get to her. Yeah. Well, and it's not just he'd use the power of money. He didn't use the power of money. What he used was like a side effect of having the power of money. He jimmied yeah. the lock with a credit card. He didn't bribe the guard. Right. And that, that's an interesting comment, and I'm not sure what it means, how it connects to anything else, but it's very salient. It's kind of, I mean, we're obviously only in the first chapter, so it's hard to say too much about how important this chapter is in terms of the, the plot itself, but I think it does establish a lot of very important elements that are going to come as we go through the book. And I don't want to touch too much on that because I don't want to, you know, spoil anything for anyone who this is their first time going through it. One thing that that struck me is, um, I think if I remember correctly, the first time I read this book, I expected Mucho to be a much bigger presence in the rest of I the book. I did too, definitely. Um, I actually, I read, I was reading a, a self-published book of scholarship on Lot Forty Nine that uh, kind of summarized his his role in Vineland, and it almost seems like he gets more play in Vineland um, at the end of Vineland. I think he gets more than one, he gets like two or three pages of prose pretty much devoted to him. And that's almost more than he gets in the rest of this book. That's definitely true. He is much more important to the plot of Vineland. But on the same, at the same time, I do think that Mucho's presence in this book is very important. He does do oh, absolutely. something very specific. He's definitely not in it yeah, as much as you would think given his relation to Oedipa. I mean, he's a pretty fleshed out character, especially, I mean, Pynchon. Oh, yeah. Pynchon in this book, I think, does a much better job than perhaps in stuff like Gravity's Rainbow of fleshing out his characters fully. 
But I mean, in this first chapter, you know, he's we get we get a lot about him. Like he's he's very much like a three dimensional character. And then I think we kind of forgot to mention this in in the beginning. But that I'm I'm curious now if that aspect of it has anything to do with Penchon's own view on this book. Um, for the, for those who don't know, and I'm I'm sure most of the people listening are already aware of this, Penchon is not a fan of this book. In the intro to Slow Learner, which is really like one of the only times that we're really given any information about him that we can rely on, he talks if, specifically about- If we about, can rely on it. Just if we can, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I, I have the quote um, ready if you want me to read Yeah, it. please, please. I don't want to misquote it. Yeah. Um, as is clear from the up and down shape of my learning career, or sorry, learning curve, however, it was too much to expect that I'd keep on for long in this positive or professional direction. The next story I wrote was The Crying of Lot 49, which was marketed as a novel, and in which I seem to have forgotten most of what I thought I'd learned up till then. I'm, I'm curious how you, both of you, feel about that idea, given that I know you've both read it. Um, what do you, like, is, is his assessment fair, or is he just being too harsh on himself? Well, he also, he calls it kind of, he implies that it's kind of like a bloated short story at one point, doesn't he? I think he calls it boilerplate. I think he just basically says, like, I wrote it because I needed money at the time. So at some point, he calls it a pot boiler. But in a letter to his editor, he just, while saying, I need an extension to finish Gravity's Rainbow, he basically says that he has a novella that he's written that he's worked on for a long time and can't get it any shorter. It's really more of a short story with glandular issues yeah that's the quote and i mean the sorry sorry pension i guess but why not just cut the the play you know i mean the play i don't we'll get there and perhaps you you know on a first read at least the play seems somewhat somewhat random and like it could be could be much easier summarized and i mean the convoluted nature of the play is perhaps key to key to understanding the novel as a whole but just what what exactly the play really adds um, is unclear to me still. Well, so I, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the uh, Death Something podcast by Michael Judge. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've listened to pretty much all of it. Yeah, Death, Death is Around the Corner. I've Thank heard you. of it. Yeah. I haven't listened to it. So I, I, uh, I've only listened to the episodes on Lot 49, but he, he is of the opinion as some scholars are, that it is a coded message about the JFK assassination. And in that framework, the the play is crucial. I could see that, yeah. I'm going to have to listen to that episode. It is, he is really interesting. Um, I've only, I, I think I've listened to the ones on 49, the ones that stick out to me more are the Gravity's Rainbow episodes. Uh, he he definitely has an interesting perspective on things, and he is definitely of the opinion that Pynchon is very anti- psychedelic use i don't agree with his assessment that it's not a worthy book in his work i don't think it's obviously i don't think it's his best by by even a long shot but it's far from his worst i think i think Um, i think a big part of pension's dissatisfaction with lot 49 is the fact that it's the most commonly taught book that he wrote and therefore is going to be a lot of people's only real only real thing that they read by him is going to be lot 49 and i mean um i enjoy lot 49 i it's kind of mid-tier a pension for me you know it's i there's other there's stuff i like less definitely but i i could kind of as a creative writer myself you know if i if i 
felt like one of my books was written because I mean, maybe I don't know. I mean, he could have written 49, lot 49 just as a way to kind of tide himself over while he was working on, you know, the much longer Gravity's Rainbow, you know, so the the one thing that anyone reads by you or that most people read by you is what you view as like a book he wrote mostly for money, um, which I think we can all agree that's not necessarily Pynchon's main motivation for writing. Um, uh, I think I don't know. I think that plays into it. Yeah, and I sorry, I, I meant to bring up when I brought up Michael Judge and Death is Around the Quarter. The the point is the the point I had in mind was the fact that he believes that Pynchon says this kind of stuff about Lot Forty Nine because he's afraid of people taking the political implications seriously from an institutional perspective. That yeah, at least I, prior to Mason and Dixon, he was worried about that. I do remember him. I think I do remember him talking about how he felt like, uh, oh, Michael S. Judge felt like Pynchon felt like he might have been um, commenting somehow too directly on the Kennedy stuff and therefore being a little bit too on the establishment's radar, is right. Yeah, definitely. That's that's what I recall. Yeah, and I think there's an alternate perspective from it. That this this is a in my mind, the way I read the book, it is a very didactic novel. It is about reading. It is about how to go about reading his other works oh, in particular. For sure. I, th- yeah. I think... And he doesn't like didacticism. He doesn't. That's clear from the rest of his novels. I think, and especially when we get to the, the you know, the, the Waste and the Tristero and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's... He is so, and I think it really shows in this book more than, I mean, Gravity's Rainbow touches on it too at the end, but his, his view on analysis, um, which is ironic given what we're doing here, um, you know, he's very much of the opinion that we shouldn't try to overanalyze everything or even just, you know, try to analyze most things like, and kind of like what we talked about in the intro episode, you know, we're not here to try to objectively say this is what this is about. But, you know, I, I think that part of what he's getting at with this is the idea that um, we should be taking things as as they come to us and how they affect us and not really worry about how the rest of the world views whatever art we're consuming or whatever media we're consuming. Like It, it really has to be subjective rather than objective definitely did we want to get into the most pension part of the chapter i for me I, th- I already mentioned it was that you know that description of the the trading in of the cars that that long i don't want to call it long-winded but that very long paragraph where he does it a lot in in gravity's rainbow and um against the day where he has these almost page length sentences of just describing minutia and it's fascinating i absolutely love like it's it seems like it should be the most boring part of a book but it's just so well done that it you just cannot stop and you don't realize that the whole thing is a single sentence i agree that's that's probably the most pinchonian part of the chapter but come in close second i'd say would actually be the second paragraph of the novel where it goes from you know, just providing context about what the letter's from, fleshing out some more information from the letter, to this montage of her going shopping and doing house duties and 
thinking about things. And then it just immediately switches into a flashback to a year prior with a ton of weird little pop culture references in there full of Mm -hmm. meaning that doesn't actually add up to anything. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. What about you, Luke? Um, so actually, I I I think I uh, mostly when I was thinking about it, I thought of something from the second chapter. I think, um, I want to say we get the we get the name of the, um, let me look at the I have the pension wiki up. I think we get the name of the um, the law firm, which has the name like this is kind of maybe a bit of a deep cut, but it has the name. And this is something I'm kind of coming up with on the on the fly, but um, it has the name Kubitsch, Kubit, Kubitsch, Kubitsch Czech, yes, which is I guess the name of a it's part of the name of a Brazilian uh, president who was who was, according I'm basically reading off the pension wiki who was sent into exile after a coup d'état, which um, for me like the fact that you could do this weird like smoke a bunch of weed and overanalyze just that name and be like. He's mentioning like you know the CIA is 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 so um, associated with the phrase coup d'état, especially in the fifties and sixties. Uh, but even today, you, know, you can do this whole smoke a bunch of weed or you know whatever, get really paranoid about um, that being this weird like reference to the CIA and uh, the Kennedy assassination and that kind of stuff. Because I mean, there is you know like I'm personally of the opinion that. I don't I think there's more I don't have any like weird uh solid like theories about the Kennedy assassination but it it does seem to be a matter of public record that Kennedy had pissed off the CIA pretty bad um which is you know of course suspicious um I don't know I just like the fact that there's it's one name among four and you know it's it's it'd be a pretty strong reference to the CIA and um U.S. foreign policy, and I mean, there's this whole big long paragraph on the Pynchon Wiki just about that one name, um, which I just, I mean, that's kind of maybe a bit of a deep cut, but um, I just find it really interesting that Pynchon, like just in a name, can can make you kind of go down a rabbit hole um, mm-hmm. where you can kind of, you know, draw a bunch of conclusions that you can become convinced of, but if you try to explain them to someone else, you're just going to sound crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, that's absolutely. I I had that happen last time I read Against the Day, and I was going through the wiki. I don't remember what it was, but something stopped me, and I started reading about it. And then, like thirty minutes later, I was like, "Oh yeah, I was reading a book." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I I completely agree. I think those four names are great because Kubitschek is obviously full of reference, and on the other, and McMingus is you know it's got a reference. I mean, Mingus as a name is famous for the jazz musician Charles Mingus, and it was. It was famous for that back when he was writing this book. And it is, I believe, a name that does come from Scottish background. I could be very wrong about that. I should probably should look it up. Um, but it's not like a name. No one's named MacMingus. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, because Pynchon, I, there was a, uh, I asked the Pynchon subreddit about, I taught Byron the Bulb uh, as a short story about a year ago. and. um Somebody on the subreddit um, suggested the the short story by Pynchon that's set in like Mingeboro or something like that. And yeah. if you look up the word Minge, it's like I know this is getting a little uh, getting a little maybe tawdry, but 
I guess it's a reference. It's an old slang word for uh, vagina. And I, yeah. I was scared that I'd have to, that one of the students, you know, I don't know. I just was scared that to deal with that, I guess, in a, in a college classroom um, with freshmen. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's, cause that seems to, I think that that, that comes up, I think in B maybe the, that name or that place name. He does seem to I think you're right. He Vintro, does seem to kind of. Vintro is uh, the entropy short story, right? Yeah, and I do think it comes up in one of the novels. I can't remember which one. I'm not 100%. I think it is V. I think it's, yeah. Well, in, in a similar kind of sense, you know, the name of the town they live is Kinneret Among the Pines. And I don't know if y'all know what Kinneret is, but it's Bethlehem, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the Sea of Galilee, right? Which I've actually... Yeah. Yeah, I've my mom used to live um, on the border of Jordan and Israel slash Palestine. And I think I've I think I've been to Kinneret, um, which I thought was interesting that he threw that in there. I mean, the the Pynchon Wiki associates it with Richard Farina and um, makes it seem like it could be like a kind of weird, like half reference to where Richard Farina was living at the time. Um it is kind of unclear why why then why a reference to why a bible reference would be thrown in there yeah i i can talk more about that later in the book i have yeah i mean maybe california things. maybe california is the promised land or something but could be uh, I, I would go in more of agnostic perspective but yeah i got mm-hmm. you yeah that'd be interesting uh, on 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 the exact opposite end of things away from like digging into words i think one of the most Pinchonian aspects of this chapter is the fact that um, he's kind of he he bridged the gap from free and direct discourse as used by Jane Austen and James Joyce um, into the, the what we now think of as postmodern style, which is that use of like long lists of things and list, uh, using description that are presented as narratively neutral. But if you dig into it a little bit, it only makes sense as perceived from a central character. And that, that is all over the place in this chapter. And it's a part of why a lot of people struggle with the book, is it's such a heavy use of that kind of conversation with the reader. I, would, I wouldn't mind if you would expand upon that, but I don't have anything to yeah. say. Uh, so uh, uh, just kind of the, the way that you can't tell at any point in this book, like, okay, going back to, you know, that last paragraph, you know, it, it starts as, as things developed, she was to have all manner of revelations. And that is explicitly not, you know, from her perspective. But without any regard for anything else, it shifts to really more of an internal investigation from her perspective of herself while still having this third-person... Um, description not just in the sense of grammar but also in like you know she doesn't view herself as rapunzel in a tower really that would be a that's a strange way for people to view themselves um and in a sense she does but she probably doesn't think of it as she let down her hair and pierce tried to climb up and then her hair fell out she probably yeah. doesn't think about pierce jimmying the lock but that's all kind of that's still indicative of how she feels. That's really what I'm talking about. And I think that's definitely something that 
he does a lot more later, especially in Gravity's Rainbow. I think that really comes into play a lot more, especially the shifting, excuse me, in perspective of like, there's so many parts in Gravity's Rainbow that shift from third person into second person and you almost never notice it happening. It just, you kind of get a few sentences in and you're like, holy shit, this is second person. Like, I'm, it, it's, it flows so seamlessly. And he does this presentation of, you know, like what you're talking about, where explaining how it's almost like he's, he's, explaining their subconscious where they're not aware of you know that kind of what's the word i'm looking for the the the, how it's portrayed but like he's showing that in a in a way that can be understood this concept that a person wouldn't really have of themselves but we can contextualize it in that sense because they're a character that we're reading about yeah i think just in general, something that Pynchon does very well is in recognizing that he's writing a book. You are reading a book. This is not some transcendent story. These characters are not archetypes. These are things that he came up with and he wrote words about these things that he came up with and they exist Mm -hmm. in the words on the page and nothing more. There's no pretense to anything else despite the fact that for a story to work, there kind of has to be. And it's kind of like I'm thinking about that now in in context of his view on the book itself as being that kind of bridge, you know, that that money generator, quote unquote, um, that led to Gravity's Rainbow, because a lot of that that kind of stylistic, you know, thing that he's doing in this that you're talking about, like really comes into play way more in Gravity's Rainbow and forward. Um, So you can kind of. You know, it's interesting when he says he he forgot everything he learned. When I think really this is him building into that, if if nothing else, like he's really ramping up into what's going to be his most known work and what he's most known for as a writer. Yeah, V V and his early short stories are clearly incredibly referenced or referenced influenced by uh, the Beats and incredibly influenced by the late modernists. And that the the modernist influence continues through Gravity's Rainbow, but the beat influence outside of sp- some specific style choices is not there in Gravity's Rainbow. I would yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, he does seem to have kind of left that behind in some ways. Although, um, I don't know some of his later stuff. Like, I don't think. I mean, I think Inherent Vice does kind of. I would say it has some some beat generation aspects to it um i'm struggling to think of anything specific um but maybe kind of the general kind of hopefulness um which inherent vices have some of it's also kind of not hopeful in other ways i get what you're saying though especially with v where v is definitely like it's it's almost like some of it's almost like he's almost parodying kerouac in some ways which is like so intensely that way well, let's yeah, let's go ahead and and wrap all of this up. So, I I this is I th- I don't know how many times I've read Lot Forty Nine. This is probably my third go through. Um, and I, I I enjoy it. You know, as I said earlier, it's not my favorite, but it's it's definitely not my least favorite of his. Um, but I think that this is this conversation especially is kind of adding a lot to how I perceive it. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to keep going forward and see, you know, where where we all are in our our viewings and our interpretations of what happens going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, it's for for me. This is like my eighth reading or something. Oh wow! Book. And and just in the last few years. Um, so I kind of coming from a different perspective a little bit there. But yeah, I mean, this this conversation, I got a lot out of it. It was uh, interesting. You guys had some great insights I hadn't considered. Yeah, and I do think this went pretty well. So we'll come back to chapter two um, next week and um, have hopefully another great conversation on that. Um, again, our email is mappingthezonepod at gmail.com. Um, if you want to share your insights, your thoughts, um, any questions on this chapter, please feel free, feel free to send us an email um, and we'll take a look and, and see what we think. Um, and until then, thank you all for joining and, um, we'll see you all next week. See ya. See ya.